X-Ray. And now live from Ecliptic Brewing in North Portland, just south of the Falcon Art Building, we join... Uh, you're joining the Beer Mana podcast. <laughs> uh, uh, it's live radio. It's live radio. So I was trying to get your script in, Jeff. Uh, well, you know, you did, you did all right. But uh, I was freelancing. Yeah. yeah. You, sh- you should read the script always. So this is a very special episode. It's the 100th episode of the Beer Mana podcast live from Ecliptic Brewing. With me is Jeff Allworth, as always. I'm Patrick Emerson. And tonight for our 100th episode, we have the godfather of Oregon beer. <laughs> John Harris, welcome, John. <laughs> the 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 always uh, uh, shy and retiring John Harris, who actually looked embarrassed by that, even though I'm sure he's heard it a million times. Uh, if you want to think about the history of uh, craft beer in Oregon, uh, you don't have to go much farther than John Harris. John, uh, he's now the founder and brewmaster of Ecliptic Brewing. Uh, you founded that in 2013. But prior to that, you were uh, a brewer at Full Sail, head brewer, brewmaster? I was a brewmaster at the R&D facility. The R&D facility at the uh, River Place, right? Uh, before that, in 1988, you joined a little place called Deschutes, a tiny little brew pub in Bend, Oregon. It was the first brewery ever in Bend, Oregon. <laughs> that was the first brewer ever in the history of Bend, Oregon. <laughs> the, the, the first head brewer, although, although you said there was no one below you, but we'll give you the head brewer title. That's right. Uh, yeah, <laughs> listeners to the pod would probably recognize uh, your beers most uh, around the country from Deschutes, Mirror Pond, Obsidian Stout, Jubilee Ale. Those are all beers that you created while you were at Deschutes. And then prior to that, uh, Oregon listeners will know the McMinimins Empire. You started in 1986 at their original Hillsdale pub, right? <laughs> <laughs> and how long were they brewing at Hillsdale before you started there? Because that was that was their first brewery. We got the license on Halloween '85, and that's when they started brewing. Mm-hmm. Okay. Wow. You were there at the dawn, basically. Yeah. <laughs> well, welcome, John. Thank you very much. <laughs> we won't do the math. We won't do the math. Besides, it's too big. It's too many numbers. I don't have enough feet and toes. Uh, but thank you very much for joining us on our 100th episode. We appreciate you being here. Yeah. No, we've been saving you. Yeah, we've been. We've been. Yeah, ever since episode one, we wanted to have you. But no, no, no. That, that's we're right. Gonna, we're going to keep him to 100. <laughs> <laughs> it's actually good we did overlook you because we needed somebody special, and uh, you are you're perfect. So yeah, it's fan- and it's fantastic to be here live in a brewery. I think. Portland probably doesn't hear enough uh, radio that's broadcast from a uh, brewery, and uh, we're going to try to rectify that tonight. Yeah. So, John, you have an illustrious history, but this is the first place that you built from the ground up. Yes. <laughs> How was that? <laughs> Shout out to my family. I know they're listening. Yeah. <laughs> Indeed. Allowing me to do this, saying, "Go ahead, guys. Go ahead. It's been a good job. Good job. Good job. And go and start a brewery. Um, you know, we're not going to support it. Other than really hard. Of course, I'll support it. I'm not going to the industry, but no, it's been quite a ride. I've I opened up brewery, but really what I did was I opened a business. Mm-hmm. I think that's what's forgotten sometimes. Yeah, right. And the allure of the brewery, when you're in a place, at the end of the day, you got to stay open, you got to be a good business. It happens to be a brewery, which is a brewery 
and then how you address it. And I think a lot of people fail. They don't see the difference between those two things. Right. And you came from working at Hillsdale for 20 years. You learned a lot about the you understand how you run a business. Right. Well, it looks like you've done a good job with the business part as well as the beer part. Yeah, you... It is challenged. <laughs> yeah. You, so I remember um, in that period of time when you were looking for a place, I saw you randomly on the street in the uh, inner southeast looking at a place um, kind of over by Grand. Uh, yeah. And I know this took you a long time to find this place. Uh Tell the story of how you how you came to find this place, which we're going to talk about later. I think is actually turns out to have been a pretty brilliant location. But at the time you found it, it was kind of on the edge of the a neighborhood. And yeah, how'd you find it? Well, you saw me looking on Seventh Avenue, right? Now it's a good building, but I guess the landlord wanted too much. He wanted a fifty thousand dollars security deposit, so I walked away, walked away from that pretty fast. Uh-huh. He really didn't want to believe it, so he tried to get the best deal he could. <laughs> well, if he did stuff, I would let him in, but it, it didn't happen, so. No, um, I was driven by this building a bunch, so at a certain point I would just basically leave my house and, okay, looking for a building, <laughs> and off I drove, and just, you know, like, <laughs> for signs, and stuff. Right. Yes, this building is sitting here, it was all fenced, locked up, and, um, uh, we go, the circle I was negotiating on a couple other buildings, but this building came up, and uh, Josh Bean, my dealer, he just says, oh, What do you know about 825 Cook Street? And I heard that Google Maps, and it's like, Are you kidding me? I had buildings countless times. And uh, so we met the landlord and uh, walked into this 14,000 square foot building that had a, a little office complex in it, but other than that, it was just a wide open building. And the parking lot at the bottom of Mississippi Avenue, the heart of the Mississippi District. Right, and right. It's like, uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, the bottom of a trendy district, and it was kind of on the edge of civilization. But now you have all kinds of residential apartments all around you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you're absolutely encircled by brand new five, six, seven-story buildings. Uh, that that that's got to be. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. <laughs> In December of 12, we found, I looked through the building and then it took about until April to get the landlord up to come to trains and get him comfortable with whatever he's going to in his building. And we actually couldn't have been lucky to find this, this All that year and a half, it was a long year, but it paid off. Yeah, it's a great location. So I assume uh, while you were working at uh, Full Sail and you have many friends in the industry, You've been thinking about your own vision for this and what kind of beers you would have and what the place would be like. So how, how do you come up with a, a concept for a brewery and what, what was your vision and what kind of beers did you expect to be brewing before you started? Oh yeah. Do you mind taking it out and doing an interview style? Because I'm having a hard time getting him. I really enjoyed that. I, I enjoyed like that. Yeah. Belgian yeah. styles of food over time. Oh yeah. We got a bad mic. So here, uh, keep talking. Okay. Um, so anyhow, so the idea with um, 
ecliptic was really that there was really no boundary. I wanted to make beer that people wanted to drink. I wanted to experiment. Like I said, get back with fruit again. I wanted to. Um, um, I do. I had some base styles I wanted to make for sure, and ideas about my IPA, what my IPA would be and stuff. But a lot of those those ideas aren't really liked anymore these days. So it's like everything's changed so much in six years. Um, but I definitely had ideas for this uh, unfiltered pilsner idea. I had my IPA idea. I had my my fruit beers ideas. I wanted to brew with uh, fresh grapes again, which I did at McMinimins. So I, one of the first beers we made was with some fresh Riesling grapes at the harvest and stuff like that. So. It really was about um, no limits. I didn't want to put me into a pole of another British brewery or a lager brewery or a German brewery or any of that kind of such stuff, Belgian brewery. I wanted to be eclectic and and, and, and allow, you know, whatever was came my way and whatever ideas. I mean, a lot of the ideas on this table we have in front of us weren't really ideas in, 19, in 2013. Yeah. So uh, before we go any further, I want to just ask you about the name. Uh, my son Simon here it just took a, a physics class of solar system, so I now know about the ecliptic plane. <laughs> but uh, astronomy is something you're into? Oh, sorry. Yeah, sorry about yeah, that. Uh, yeah. <laughs> no, the, um, yeah, no, astronomy is a, is a hobby of mine. Um, I got into it in the early 2000s. I had, you know, my uncle had given me a telescope in my youth that I you know, eventually, you know, High school happened, and post high school, and I kind of got away from the hobby. And then I kind of, I kind of rediscovered it again in the early 2000s, uh-huh. and would go to star parties with my telescope and talk to my fellow astronomy friends. And I haven't done much of that since opening the brewery, so I keep saying I'm going to get back to it. So maybe actually this year I might. Um, but I wanted to have a theme for the brewery. And I was, and when the, when I was really um, developing the whole business plan, I was really, yeah. really into astronomy then. And, yeah. And I thought we'll have an astronomical name. We'll bring a theme. Uh, a friend of mine, Deborah, suggested ecliptic, and I'm like, well, it's kind of chunky. I mean, six years ago, ecliptic was really a, what? Ellipse? Yeah. Eclipse. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. ecliptic, and now it actually it rolls off the tongue much better. But uh, and I wanted, to, but the two things I wanted was I wanted a you know brewery that was creative, innovative, and just had no boundary. But then I also wanted um, a, a, fo- a food-forward restaurant that brought high-quality food yeah. uh, that I really thought was lacking in, in the quote-unquote brew pub sector and basically open a restaurant, not a brew pub in the sense that, oh, when you go into a brew pub, the food doesn't have to be good there. Well, the beer does, though, you know, that kind of idea, which is unfortunately still prevalent um, in the world. And um, But I really wanted a food-focused restaurant that changed its menu uh, seasonally. And as, as time wore on, the ecliptic... Um, the ecliptic made total sense because it's the path our planet and all the other planets travel around the sun in a given year. So it really ties in a seasonal beer. It ties in a seasonal food. It ties into our journey around the, around the sun on planet Earth. And so it just the name actually eventually became the name as we've added different names. So you also name your beer. Uh, you hang on to that one. We'll go back and forth. Okay. <laughs> uh, when you're in the field, you never know what's going to happen with your mics. Um, so you also name your beer after. Uh, Astrological stuff. Astronomical. Astronomical. Astronomical, sorry. Yeah. We've done astrological also, but there is a difference. I was a religious studies major. You're going to have to forgive me. Uh, So why don't we, so we have some of these in front of us. So why don't we have, taste one of these beers that's uh, named after something in the skies. Let's start with one of the the uh, the fruit beer. Which one is that one? What is that one called? All right. um, Yeah, it's uh, Tucana Tangerine Sour. So... One of the weird things about Full Sail was it was in Hood River, which is famous for its fruit, and they refused to brew with fruits. So now you get to brew with fruit again. So uh, uh, one, one of the things that's really fascinating to me is you've started to go toward uh, kettle sour beers. 
which I guess it's because you were at a place that didn't do a lot of fruit beers. I did not know this was an interest of yours. So talk about this beer and kettle sours in general and like tell us what you were shooting for in this beer. Gotcha. Yeah, I mean the whole, um, I call it hot side souring because you really don't have, you really can't tie your kettle up for 48 hours for very long and keep making these beers. Um, I think it's a style that really did get developed here in Portland, Oregon, and then the rest in peace commons. Uh, those boys were there were brewing with yogurt and souring, souring wort in their kettle with yogurt. <laughs> that's what we were doing first was souring it with yogurt. Is your beer vegan? Uh, I'm not sure that one's vegan. Um, it's, it's oil, it, you know? <laughs> and um, so it really um, kind of started in Portland with some of the brewers uh, making these kind of unique beers that were using lactobacillus, basically, as a, tar- as a souring um, uh, bacteria to make the beer tart. And... Um, we found that actually as we got away from the yogurt, because we found it to be unreliable, like one day we, we pitched the right amount of Nancy's probiotic number four, and it didn't start, <laughs> didn't start souring. Then we decided we'd just go to a lactobacillus strain uh, in general, which is what we really want anyway. And then the, bit, the flavor really cleaned up a bit then. But um, I think it's a unique style that was invented in America, and I think it's uh, a, a very quaffable, light, refreshing style of beer. Um, any time of year, really. Um, you know, we started with our Karina Peach Sour, a few years ago, and we have actually a 60 barrel souring tank that its only sole purpose is to sour wort. And um, Tucana was a seasonal beer last summer, and we wanted to bring it back as one of our year round beers in the bottle. Um, and uh, the, um, but basically, the idea behind this is a, it's a, a pale malt, light, slight little bit of wheat malt um, base, uh, gets made in the brew house, boiled briefly, and it's cooled in the souring tank at about 90 ish degrees. Sours for 36 hours, back to the kettle to get popped and finished um, and fruited. Um, and so it, really easy to make beers in lots of ways. Um, uh, but this is designed around tangerine. And so really just let the tangerine flavor shine through, that crisp tartness and refreshing. Mm. It's very, very simple. It's, Hops aren't part of the deal. It's, a, it's delightful. I would have been slightly skeptical before I tasted just because citrus and sour seems to be a tricky, tricky mix. But it's really good. Yeah, I mean, the kind of, I mean, the, the pure we use is real balanced. Just, um, it just really blends well with the, the tartness. It adds another layer of t- complexity to the tartness. Yeah, I mean, I think it works really well, this particular beer. Tangerines have uh, a, a flavor profile that really matches well with beer. They're kind of juicy in that hop way, right. and they're, uh, they have their own kind of acidity, so they, they harmonize well. It's a really nice... Uh, Bright, fresh beer. Yeah, and like I can say it's brand new. It's gonna be year round now for us too in the bottles, so you'll be able to find it where the finest beer stores you have, most likely. So yeah, so it's only one that people can try. I think it's quite nice. Another beer that you have, we have here in front of us, is uh, a porter, uh, which what and the name of it is Capella. Well, get, yeah, Capella Porters. So, yeah. yeah. So Tucana is a constellation in the southern sky. And Capella is a bright star in Aruga, the charioteer constellation. So all the names are tied back to astronomy. So we can use this other beer maybe as a way to uh, talk a little bit about the history that you've had in, in brewing. Um, you got started uh, in a time when porters were common, right? Like in the 1980s, 1990s, a lot of people had porters and stouts, and they're re- they've really gone away. And you're, I think, one of the only breweries in Oregon that has a regular full-time porter that's still available. Uh, you know, I think one, one thing about being in the industry for 34 years is uh, a kind of sense of longevity and maybe not, maybe appreciating some of the older style beers that have fallen out of favor. Will you talk a little bit about 
porters and stouts, and you've always been a fan of, you're, you've at least always brewed them. I don't know if you actually are a fan, but I'm a fan, and I know that I can always get one at John Harris's joint, wherever it happens to be. So, yeah, talk a little bit about that. Yeah, no, uh, yeah, definitely in the 80s, you definitely found a porter and stout at every porter, and maybe you might find a porter and a stout on tap at every right. brew pub in America, you know. Um, I mean, I think Sierra Nevada is the one that's still been making Porter since the beginning, and they still make it to this day. You don't, I don't see it very much anymore in the stores, but yeah. But um, no, I started brewing Porter at McMinimins, but then I, when I was at Deschutes, we made this thing called Black Boot Porter, and um, I think I've heard of it. It got pretty popular, um, which is amazing to think about the amount of draft Porter we were selling out of Deschutes back in the '80s, and even well, up to now. You mean, but um, it was um, so Black Boot. Um, I basically learned a lot making that beer. For the, for the years I was there, at full sale we made imperial porters and stronger porters. But um, I knew that when I got back here that I wanted to have a porter again. I wanted to make sure it had nothing to do with with a black beer porter, other than the fact it probably would both be made with Great Western Pale Malt. That would be the only um, right. that the only thing that was be like the same. You know what I mean? So the secret ingredient that's in black beer porter is not in here, which I can't tell you what it is. I've never told anybody. Oh, wow. Uh, I didn't know there was a secret, <laughs> ingredient. secret ingredient. Oh, wow. I'm bound, I'm bound, to, I'm bound to lifetime of that one. But, um, oh, wow. It's a, yeah, I can't, I can't talk All about it. All right, after we get um, off the air, we're going to have to find out what that is. <laughs> you're not going to find out. But anyhow, um, so I like porters. And actually, the first batch of porter I made here, I dumped. I, I didn't turn out the way I liked it. It had some kind of odd metallic flavor. I don't know where it came from. Maybe it was from the first run through a fermenter or whatever it was. But I... Mm. The day before we opened, I, you know, I had to, you know, I couldn't pour it. It wasn't right. right. So as that sucked. That does um, suck. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and uh, I, think, I think the FCA. But uh, this beer is designed around. Um, FCC, FCC, yeah, yeah, whatever it is. But this beer is really designed around some malts that weren't available back in the 80s and 90s. was was from Wireman and their uh, carafa malts. Uh, they're de-husks. And so right. there's no husk in here. So you don't get any of the, There's no tannin or slight bitterness from the husk that you might get as that beer is, that malt is being roasted. And so it has a much more creamier, full flavor, less astringent uh, character. And so it's built up around a couple of those malts called carafas, some caramel malt, and um, hop to, you know, kind of lightly hop with American varieties to kind of bring a little slight citrusiness to the beer. But um, it's just really just a brown porter, such as the style name is so boring, but uh, it's a, in the brown porter <laughs> style, and where robust porters are more uh, angular, they have more of that uh, burnt component you might start to see when you go into stouts. Um, but this beer is, um, I mean, it's probably our most award-winning beer that we've made out here. It won the World Beer Cup in 2016. Oh, wow. Um, that was definitely a, a moment uh, that was awesome. To hear that name, Capella, I'm like, what? <laughs> <laughs> I think I just had a happier night, Elvison. Nice. You only get four tries at World Beer Cup. So, okay. Um, it will never win the World Beer Cup again because it already has. <laughs> well, we will never enter it again. Why? You know, we only get four entries. <laughs> right, right, right. But yeah. it's also run the Oregon Beer Awards for certain categories and stuff. Uh -huh. So I'm really proud of this beer. It's um, just an easy drinking, great, just dark beer to drink. Goes with lots of different foods. It's just a, it's a solid. I think it's, a, I think that style is just solid for food and solid for a brewery to, to have. Okay, we're. Sorry, folks. We're still having uh, technical difficulties. Um, so we're toggling a mic right now. So if you were to tell a layperson, for example, someone listening out there right now, what the difference is between this and Blackbeat Porter, how would you describe those? Wow. It's been a long time since I've 
Had a black beard, to be honest with you. Um, I, I would say just in general, this beer is a little, has a little more of a body. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I and, agree. And uh, a little creamier in its mouthfeel. Uh, I think that would be the biggest differences. It's just uh, it's more round. It's less uh, black beer's a little a little thinner than this. I think that's right. I, I think there's uh, because it's fuller and creamier, it allows it to have a more assertive uh, roast note. Uh, it's ba- it's in more balance. So just the whole presentation has more flavor all all around, and it's still quite uh, sessionable beer, right? It's like five and change or something. Five and a half, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Patrick and I talk a lot about how uh, <laughs> we're as we get older, especially we really like beers that are uh, s- south of six percent. <laughs> It's hard uh, to find in this landscape. <laughs> it's good. Yeah, it is hard. So we're always excited about that. And it's nice when you have a beer that has a big flavor impact like a porter uh, that's low alcohol. It's uh, They're good good session beers. So moving back, um, if you can remember back to the 1980s, uh, talk about what brewing beer was like. Uh, you, you just mentioned one thing that I think is, you know, one really big difference is uh, the ingredients that were available were really different. What what else was different about brewing in those early days when you had weird equipment and fewer ingredients and all? Um, well, for me, the first part, having done home brewing a little bit, the biggest change was just the fact that I was working with these ingredients every day and just getting used to getting used to them and, and the ones that were available at the time. You know, I mean, that was a big deal to try to. It's like you get used to the different smells and flavors and stuff that were, became what was normal in a brewery, you know. Um, but as far as ingredients goes, I mean, I mean it, you know, we had a lot of hops you could pick from, or an early cluster, late cluster. You know, we had <laughs> Cascade. <laughs> we had, you know, I mean, hops were, you know, the, the, the quiver of, of aroma and flavor you can get out of hops now compared to the 19. But late late 80s was you know you had about six or seven hops you could work with, but they all were targeted. Uh, mostly all the newer varieties were really being targeted to big brewers who wanted to um, use less in the boil, more alpha acids for just to get the bitterness in the beer because they were not looking for a Roman flavor. So right. all the hops that were bred um, back then were really being bred for agronomics for uh, you know extract or something like that. So that was a big difference in what we see today. You know, 30 years later. Or even 10 years ago, there's been a lot of hops since even 10 years ago that mm-hmm. are really now sowing the flavors like in this beer that weren't there before. You didn't get tropical out of hops in the, in the 80s, 90s, or 2000s, you know? Right, right, yeah. <laughs> but um, you basically got what you had. I mean, back then, I mean, you had like three different types of caramel malt. You might have access to two suppliers. I mean, Brees was still was the biggest specialty malt producer in America, probably still is. Um, we did what we really had going for us was Great Western Malting had a plant in Vancouver, which made it really easy for brewers to, to especially the early guys like the Whitmer Brothers and such, the Carl at Bridgeport. They could actually drive their truck over there and buy a pallet of malt and drive it back because it was way before silos and stuff. So, but then in uh, early 2000s, Great Western started producing caramel malt over there and uh, other forms of malt, and that was that was great because we could go in there and work with them and learn about it and then actually push them to make certain um, 
types of malt that we would be interested in. That's why that's the biggest change now. I think that in, in the ingredients that are used in beer is that we've got for for a lot many years. You know, your your um, what you wanted to have for your specialty malts was like this big decision every year. Like who are we going to go with? Are we going to change? And cause that's when beer beer colors were orange to amber. That was a normal color of beer in the craft beer segment. Right. You know, and now now it's just. I mean, I go walk into the bar and I, yep, they're all six. They're six beers. They're all pale, <laughs> and they don't taste at all alike. <laughs> but they look the same, you know. So right, beers right. really kind of color-wise has gotten uh, homogenized quite a bit in what people want these days. And uh, I mean, who knows? Caramel malt may come back again. I know that the, the people who make that aren't making it as much as they used to, yeah. because it's just not, in, not needed. Yeah, They're not wanted in the beers that people want to drink. All right, Patrick. <laughs> What about uh, brewing techniques? Like, for example, the way that people use hops nowadays. So much cold side additions. And oh, yeah, it's totally different. Um, back then, the Whirlpool Charge was your number one for aroma. You'd throw, a, and you'd only throw, you'd be throwing a, a third of what's being used now in certain styles of beer, like even pale ale, uh, known for a little nice hop, hoppy nose. <laughs> for aroma now um, and all the aromas gathered in, in the brew house it wasn't gathered in the fermenter so dry hopping was a new thing that kind of came about um, I mean Anchor was doing it with Liberty Ale um, and you would go tour there and you'd hear about this but no one would ever it doesn't have any really knowledge about what. how do you dry hop or how much do you dry hop and <laughs> now you can't imagine the world without dry hopping right it's, just, right. it's, it's, it's unheard of you know so I mean when I first opened my, my goal was not to dry hop I was like <laughs> I, just, I just had that no one no, no I just had this crazy idea that was like no I'm making it, it in the brew house I'm making it old school you know and you know within a year I was dry hopping the beer you know? <laughs> and it had a new name you know <laughs> yeah so I'm at a winery in California you know so, <laughs> you know, the, so look for a trademark it's like you can't trademark that I'm like oh okay but um, but no hopping. I mean, it's changed too because when we started dry hopping in like early nine, early, you know, mid late nineties or early nineties, um, it was all done on the colds. It was all done cold in the fermenter, and we were dry hopping colds. So we'd crash and then move it on to hops. And what we discovered over time now is most of the dry hopping you know now is done at uh, it around sixty degrees mm -hmm. on the warm side because you get more you get more out of it. Right. And so that's been a big change just in the last five, six years. Mm -hmm. And different uh, methods of introducing the hops, uh, the amount of hops in dry hop for IPAs, like for like Phaser here, it's a crap load of hops in there. <laughs> and uh, we get that aroma, get that flavor, you know. And uh, So I think, I think hoppy, the, the way people have used hops has definitely changed since uh, when I started. Yeah. Um, with a lot more varietal um, choices and that work better. I mean, like I said, back then, you had six hops you could choose from, but they all were designed basically to drive alpha and not aroma. Yeah, I can't believe uh, that you were actually using Cluster. Cluster is this 19th century hop that is really rough. I mean, it's uh, it's an old, it's like a, a heritage hop. It's yeah. it's not, the reason people don't use it anymore is because it's a rough, weird hop. I can't believe <laughs> no, you had to use that. No, no I, we had played with a Cluster once or twice at, at, when I was at Miniman's, and we determined that we didn't really need to use those anymore. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, <laughs> but really, it was I mean, the hop heard around the world was really the Columbus hop, and um, ah. I mean, it was Centennial was C, it was CFJ ninety, and that was a big one. But then, um, and that was like called Super Cascades, uh -huh. and that came out in I want to say like ninety four or something like that, and that was got pretty popular because it was one way to get a lot more punch in your beer. Uh, then using 10 times more cascades and such. So that became Centennial. But then the, um, one year, suddenly they, the growers would drop this thing called Columbus on you, which was this huge, just 
I mean, three percent oil, this citrus, and a touch of a little touch of onion garlic, which is common in some of those earlier varieties. Yeah. In a nice way, and it, but it was thirteen percent alpha, and it, but it had the aroma of like twenty-seven thousand cascades and Hills put together. <laughs> <laughs> and that aroma is kind of not as popular as it used to be now because because of that kind of OG thing. But yeah, um, yeah. it um. It was really a revolutionary hop, the, the, and that's when the breeding programs were just getting, they're still going for extract, but what they found when they're driving extract, they actually were driving the aroma components to the hops too, and I think that, that hop really just started getting the growers, the breeders to say, oh, wait a minute, okay, these, the craft brewers are really digging these aromas and stuff, and maybe we should start uh, going that way with some of our varieties, and that started the whole train of what became Mosaic and Citra and yeah, a, a lot of other hops, you know. Even, even the Germans driving that way for more aroma, and their aroma hops, you know, Saphir and things like that, so. Yeah, actually, I just did a roundup of new hops, and it turns out uh, the Slovenians are... <laughs> okay. That was like slow motion. That was yeah. weird. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the, the Slovenians you got a, sl- you got a Slovenian new, mic stand there. Uh, they, they, <laughs> I do. They have new. They have new modern juicy hops, and the French are making new modern juicy hops, and even the English are getting into new. Mo- like everybody, this is this is the future of, of, of beer, uh, and it. I guess it it starts with the hops that you were just talking about and yeah. producing the same flavors that you're talking about. Yeah, like New Zealand hops were being pushed by my good friend Finn Knudsen for years and, uh, but they weren't, the quality wasn't that wasn't there back in the um, 90s and 2000s. No, seriously. Mm-hmm. And then suddenly that switched and suddenly and then they started coming out with these new varieties like Nelson and Waimea and Vic Secret and all these other hops that now are, now are you know, Galaxy, people are freaking out about, but they're right. growing these really killer hops. I'm, I hope they're having a good year right now because they're harvesting them soon. And, um, <laughs> if you can get some, right? Yeah, if you can get some air brewers out there, if you can get some, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, but just the turnaround of New Zealand hops and what they brought to the brewing, uh, to brewers for their uh, their ingredient quiver, it's been pretty cool. This is a good moment to talk about the Phaser Hazy IPA. So. You've now gone thoroughly modern, not old school at all. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> so tell us about this beer. Okay. So, Casey started on the East Coast, and uh, a lot of a lot of local brewers drew that line in the sand. I will never make a hazy. Never, <laughs> never, never. <laughs> and uh, were you one of them? I wasn't. Okay. I, I was not. A, I, I really hadn't had enough of them to know what they were. Right. I mean, I mean, honestly, it, they really weren't on even on the radar in Portland until, as you probably know, Great Notion opened, and then yeah, they opened making the style of beer that no one else in town was making it because most of the guys said we won't make that style, <laughs> and uh, they had gone out there and I guess I think they worked with learned, learned some tricks from the guys out east and uh, kind of brought that style to Portland and um, and kind of just got to the point where suddenly it's like, well, I mean, they're popular and. And uh, so we decided to um, go on a seasonal and make what we're going to call Phaser Hazy IPA. Um, the idea behind it, idea behind Hazy is you you plow in there lots of pale malt, but then you throw in even more flaked wheat, flaked oats, mm-hmm. flaked this, flaked that, just, just <laughs> to flake it out, you know, and you try to get all this high protein level in the beer. Right. And uh, you got to have the right yeast strain. Uh-huh. Early, early, early uh, trials of this beer, or a hazy in general. We, we were trying to use our house yeast, which doesn't throw the haze. Uh-huh. And of course, I talked to my boys out at Widmer, and they're like, "Oh yeah, no, that one won't work." <laughs> <laughs> There's something about the certain types of yeast strain that meshes with the high loading of the the hopping, high, dry hopping rate, and then the 
the high load of protein, and together they form this mate, this haze that is permanent in the beer. Um, and we found last year, over the past couple of years, working with fruit and hazies, that fruit's really a bad idea for hazies. Uh, Certain fruits, for sure. Hmm. They like to not make the haze, especially yeah. over after you put them in the bottle. That's interesting. It, oh, so it's they gone. Drop, <laughs> yeah, drop out. They yeah. drop out. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's yeah. terrible. But um, anyhow, so Phaser came about, just like I said, as a seasonal um, two years ago. And uh, we couldn't make enough of it right. at all. Say, now and, it's your best-selling beer. And so <laughs> it's, it cycled out, and then um, we kind of didn't brew it. And then uh, late 2013, we decided, or not 13, um, 18, we decided just to start making it when we could, when we had an open tank. And, uh, and, we, and, you know, and, and so basically the idea behind the beer is, like I said, just really nice full-flavored IPA, nice you know, light malt body. But then um, just lots of juicy hops, you know, mosaic, mazaka, citra. So that citrus meets tropical mm-hmm. and bring the juicy up and bring the yeah. like the uh, jamminess of it up a bit and stuff. I don't know. What but typical of a Northwest version, it's got a nice bitter balance to it. Yeah, yeah it's definitely got it's a, like a 65 IBU. So mm-hmm. It's designed to be an IPA, but but didn't drive all that um, juiciness. Yeah. Um, I don't yeah. know. I don't know how we got a trademark on Phaser, but we did. Um, yeah, so. it, it, it's, it's true. With, with the Star Trek phenomenon, I'm surprised I, I, you were I able. I was surprised. Yeah. Was like, yeah, we couldn't. We could. We only we could trademark Phaser, but we couldn't trademark Hazy. That's, right. I have no pro- I don't, I'm not trying to pull a Bill Owens here and try to trademark Brewpub right. like he did back in the 80s. No, I own Brewpub. You have to pay me. You know, like, that was like, oh, I didn't know about that. That's you, the you Buffalo Bills that? guy. Yeah, Buffalo Bills. Yeah, yeah, yeah. trademark Brewpub. Huh. They tried to tell everybody they couldn't use it. It's like, uh, I don't think so. You yeah, know? that's not going to work. So anyhow, um, but Phaser's now, we call it a, we, we make it most of the time. It's available. We don't, it pretty much, we sell it to independent chains. We don't have any chain authorizations for it or anything. It's just, it's, it's like our one beer that we just let it, we make it when we can, make as much as we can, and and uh, it sells really well. And I, I and what's interesting in the process of going to Hazy's is you can tell who's drinking them. You know, what I mean, when I have all those golden beers, and you can't tell, but if it's a Hazy, right? And when you right, say right. look down the bar and you see, right? Oh look, okay, you know, not to be, not this is not ageism or anything, but like, oh look, the fifty-year-old guy, the forty-year-old guy, the thirty or twenty-year-old, you know, and the nineteen. Oh wait, no, nineteen, not nineteen. Sorry, it's a joke. <laughs> um, sorry, LCC is a joke. Sorry. Um, no, but you, but you, it's, 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 hazies go across all. It's not just one certain person like the the, the bro dude you know wanting this hazy. It's it's actually men, women, different ages all say no. I really like this. Yeah. I, I like these beers. Yeah, and, a lot of flavor. And yeah. um, I think that um, everybody says they're they're going away. No time. You know, I don't think they're going away anytime soon. No, no, no. I think way. once people get hooked on a the flavor, they're gonna they like that flavor. I mean, cyclically. I mean, the citrus hop based IPA wasn't. Flavor was you know, in charge for years, and now the Cascade Centennial Columbus Chinook IPA is just not what people want so much anymore. And right, so, right. so we have Starburst now, which has you know all the tropical hops in it too. But it's but it's not a hazy. But um, you know, and actually at a certain point we we're getting ready to start canning beer, and we were looking at canning Orbiter. That was our plan, and at the last minute. We decided that we thought we actually it would be better for us to keep Orbiter in a bottle and come with a new IPA, and called Ecliptic Starburst IPA, and. Um, yeah, and that was, uh, I think that was like a real, that was a smart move on our part to, to make that change from what would have been Orbiter but to, to, to the modern IPA versus the old West Coast IPA. One thing I've noticed, and I've said this on the podcast uh, or radio show before, uh, <laughs> is uh, it, it does seem like 
the East Coast, where especially New England, where they didn't have a big palate for hops, uh, they were really into stripping away absolutely all bitterness. And here in, in, in our region, the hazies have all the juiciness, all the fruitiness, all that the aromatics that you want. They do have a little bit more bitterness in it. To me, out that, yeah, yeah, out here. So like you said, this is 65 IBUs, you know, as opposed to 20 or whatever you find in Boston. And right. uh, so anyway, I I personally uh, uh, find these a little bit more sessionable. Uh, the balance is there. I, I like with fruit, you want a little bit of acidity to balance the sweetness. And with these hops, to me, the bitterness balanced the sweetness nicely. So. Uh, it's a really fantastic beer. Cool. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah, we found out, like, this one made, like, um, it almost made it to the final round at JBF last year. Oh, really? Yeah. We, we, and how, we many, how many entries were there this year in Hazy? I think it was 3,000. 3, no. <laughs> yeah. I think it was just under 400, I think. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that was just a Hazy IPA. Right. There's Hazy Pale. And then there's Hazy Strong Pale. Right. But, uh, and then there's regular non-Hazy IPAs. Of everything else, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> But that was cool though that we um and we got some actually decent notes back from the, the judges on that one, and the, but the fact it progressed that far in the in the, in the judging that it actually left three tables to get to the I think they had five tables on that one I think remember right so it made it to the almost to the final table like mm -hmm. so it was in the last I don't know 36 beers were probably considered I thought, out of that many I thought. I was, I was like, I was really proud of that. I thought it was cool. And yeah. so show me that we're on the right track. Right. Absolutely. So, yeah. so what else can we do to make it even better? You know. Well, I, I'm sensitive to uh, mosaics, which have a real savory note to me, and um, this is not very savory at all. So my uh, tip <laughs> of my hat to you. It's, uh, you've managed to rain in There's the. There's a little mosaic. bit of mosaic in there, but it's, it's, citrus is really the lead hop in this yeah. beer. So. Which I love. That's a good hop. It's a great hop. So I want to turn a little bit to the business of craft beer, because of course, because you're an economist. <laughs> economist, and that's what I do. Uh, but but, but I'm, not, I'm not a doctoral candidate like a former guest you had on your show. <laughs> oh, you heard that one, did you? I listened to the whole thing. <laughs> that was hilarious. That one was not live. So uh, yeah, yeah, the FCC sure didn't have to worry about. There. Yeah, there were a lot yeah. of bleeping for the for the radio. That a lot of bleeping had to happen. That was sort of our most infamous the episode ever. The industry is changing quickly. Uh, there's a lot of Deschutes is an example of a company that was sailing along really well and now facing some pretty severe headwinds. So how do you think about the market today versus 10 years ago, 20 years ago? What do you have to, as a brewer, what do you have to do to sort of stay alive? Um, well, first thing, you got to be willing to... You gotta be willing to give the people what they want. I yeah. mean, the Rolling Stones said it so many years ago, <laughs> and if, I think that if you want to stay in business or and you want to be relevant, you have to listen to what people want. And like the whole hazy thing draws back to that. You know, I am never gonna brew it. I'm never gonna brew. It. I mean, what are you what are you getting from that stance? I mean, what you, what, you, what is your soapbox about there? Right. And I know I have a lot of brewer friends who are, are really they're purists. They're like they don't understand. They don't want to change. They want. You know, they, they love a mild, you know, and things like that. And I mean, I, I can appreciate a good mild in Britain on, on a hand engine and beer pump. I mean, it's going to be awesome, you know what I mean? But, totally. Um, back to your, more to your real question, but is, uh, you know, I mean, you got to surround yourself with people who um, are uh, smart. You got to, um, people who you work with you who actually follow trends or like my sales manager, Erin Gray Kemplin. I mean, she joined me five years ago and uh, her anniversary was just last week. And, uh, and we were getting ready to make, I was going to make a double Pilsner. And she says, what's this? And I'm like, it's double Pilsner, you know? I mean, like, it's not, it's not a Bach, it's a, it's a Pilsner, but it's dry, you know? And it's going to be great. She's like, why? And I'm like, 
I asked her to be honest with me. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and I went, what do you want, like a blackberry sour then? And she's like, yeah. That sounds pretty that good. Sounds yeah. pretty good. <laughs> that sounds good. That was actually our first sour we ever made was ultraviolet blackberry ah, sour. Ah, there it is. And what I really learned from her and just, and, uh, and just talk and, and asking all my staff to be, you know, Give me your ideas. Throw them out. I mean, yeah. what, what do you see happening? What do you see going down the pike? What's, you know, really kind of watching the trends to see what people want. Because in this day and age, I mean, I guess a whole bunch of people want hard seltzer because it's <laughs> the biggest selling beer in Oregon last year uh, by far. And so, right. which is not beer at all, but anyhow. Right. Um, <laughs> and I'm not making a seltzer right now. No, I'm not. So, anyhow, so <laughs> I'm not saying I never will make a seltzer. I'm just saying I'm not making one right now. But, um, no, I think it's really like you know, following the trends and being willing to, okay, I, I need to make a hazy. And you make a sa- people want sours, people want hazies. How can you make that where you feel like where you feel really proud of it, and yeah. you feel that like okay, I'm going to do that, but I'm going to do it my way a little bit, and then throw your punch on it, and you know, and and then we become really collaborative here. Uh, in early days, I was a, res- a pure recipe writer and stuff, and nowadays I really approach it from a more collaborative um, angle. But I want all the brewers. I mean, even in the company has an idea. Or I think if you had this, this beer might be interesting. So I mean, I really have opened my mind up. Not being the, the recipe writer all the time and letting yeah. letting my crew come up with ideas and letting the you know people lead those some of the projects and you know our brewer series beers where the brewers have total you know do it it's your beer. Cool. In my mind, I might say I, I wouldn't do that. <laughs> <You'll> learn. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, the beer's fine, but just like, he's like, uh, yeah, you're right. You shouldn't have done that one, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. But you know, so you know, really try new styles. I mean, we did thirty some beers. Out of house last year, and probably ten or twelve more in house. Um, I can't remember anymore. I mean, just all, all on the back of my shirt. But, but uh, <laughs> um, they're really, I think, you know, Patrick, it's really just to, you know, just follow the trends, and not not like you're, you're chasing the tail of somebody, but like just just be aware of what's really happening right. in the marketplace. If you're not aware of how seltzers grew last year, and you're in some, you don't aren't look think, at least thinking about that. Well, it's it's yeah. pretty myopic, you know. It's like, you, so it's, it's, it comes back to your point about being a business, not just a brewer, right? Right. You can have fun doing both, but yeah. You know, what so, I learned, having done this for six years or so, is that the business side cannot be denied. You know? Right. Yeah. <laughs> the other side of that is, uh, you also have to have your own identity. You have to. People have to know what an ecliptic beer is going to taste like. Yeah. So, uh, how do you? How do you? Do you have a? A kind of north star that you think about evaluating what an ecliptic beer is. Oh, very nice. That's a hard. Oh, it's astronomical. Oh, thank star. you. Yeah. <laughs> My puns are always <laughs> unintentional. <laughs> <laughs> unintentional questions. So yeah. no. Um. Uh, I mean, we've stuck to the same East strain for most of our house beers that are non, um, you know. Longer to Belgian, and I think that's that becomes part of your character. Mm-hmm. Uh, the yeast that I was thought I was going to use was not the yeast I ended up using, and after a while, I was like, "This yeast is just working just fine." I mean, the guys at Winmer are like, "Hey, we got tons of 1056 if you want it, anytime you want it." And I'm like, "Well, I was going to use this yeast," and then I thought, "Well, I don't even know when I'm going to start brewing. I don't. I'll start with that yeast, and maybe I'll switch to the other one." And I didn't. I just kept with it. So I think the yeast strain really flies through the beer. Yeah, it's a very clean yeast, so I think it really lets all the flavors shine through. Um, um, I think our beer's only gotten better since we opened. I mean, I think the beer was good when we opened, but I think that it's, um, even though I was, had been brewing for a long time, it still was a new system, it still was new tanks, it still was, you know, all those things that go into m- making beer. Um, 
hiring the right people and put them in the right positions to help you help you achieve your beer goals and stuff like that. That's what I think. Um, so I don't know if I answered the question or not. No, no, great. That's good. I was gonna. So the follow up I was gonna say is the we've now seen a bunch of closings as well as brewery openings. Would you be as confident today opening Ecliptic as you were seven years ago? And I guess another way you could ask similar question is, do you have any advice to someone who is thinking about opening a brewery today? Right. Um, that's a good question. I mean, it, it, there's another 2,000, you know, there's another 2,000 more breweries in the country, 3,000 more breweries in the country than when we yeah. first opened. I mean, yeah. Um, it's been crowded space now. I mean, the growth, they say the growth rate of breweries openings from 2014 is like, Above 30%, the breweries opened before 2014 is 4%. Well, obviously we opened late in, t- late in 2013 and we're on the 2014 trend. But um, uh, I don't know. I mean, I mean, know your market. Know, know what you really want to do. It's just like any business decision. I mean, if you're going to go into business, know why you're going into business. And uh-huh. know why. What, do you, what, what are you going to have is going to be your differentiator? What's going to make you unique and different? You know, right. we tied astronomy and beer together, made it fun. And, had a nice fun restaurant to come and initially come find us and find out who we are, yeah. but also bring flavors that people aren't expecting or things that they're, they do expect. I mean, there's certain people drink a porter, they have a certain thing in mind that they want to see. And right. if I dry hop the hell out of that thing, it would be like, what's the guy doing? You know, and, yeah. and uh, some breweries around the country are being able to live on making really funky beer, yeah. but I'm sure it's niche and it's harder, right. harder, harder, harder to get that around the country. And, right. but, um, I, would I do it again? I mean, I, 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 would, I would say I probably would, yeah, do it now. I'd just, it'd just be a different marketplace. I'd be looking at making different beers. If you look at my original business plan and what I talked about making, it's so old. It's just, it's, it's, it's so 2000s, you know? Sure. Well, <laughs> well no, it just it was styles. Of, I mean, Belgians are dead. Yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah. it's terrible to think, but craft beer Belgians are just not as popular other than the East Coast. Yeah. Where Allagash somehow it grew a brewery to hundreds of thousands of barrels of beer on a white and a wit beer. Yeah. But uh, wit beers and somehow Blue Moon sells everywhere in the country, but a craft wit beer won't sell in the Northwest. But right. um, the Belgian styles were, I and mean, we were still making, you know, we did one with Russian River last year, a hoppy Belgian golden, but we dry hopped the crap, you know, dry hopped, dry hopped it up and um, just to give it a little bit more aroma and character. But I think that, um, yeah, the styles that were really, that's how I'd be making when I first opened, I made, but after two years, that, that, that went out the window. I mean, that's another thing too, right? You're uh you're a Portland brewer, and you've been brewing in Portland for most of the time, a little bit in Bend, but uh, we have a, an incredibly rich tapestry of breweries here, so you have to also fit into that. You're not, it's not like Ecliptic is, is, exists in a void. You have to uh, be a part of this environment where you have all different kinds of breweries and stand out in that crowd, which I have to say, uh, Ecliptic, uh, I do a, every year I do a top 10 uh, best breweries in Portland in my blog, and uh, Ecliptic has been solidly a top 10 brewery from, from my perspective because of its distinctiveness and what you're bringing to the table. So that's, I mean, I think being a, being a good brewery in Portland, Oregon is probably different than being a good brewery in Topeka, Kansas or uh, Fort Lauderdale. You know, it's it, this is sort of... If you can make it here, you can make it anywhere. Yeah, it's pretty hard here. <laughs> Thank you for including us. I appreciate that. No, no, it's it's tough. It's like, um, you know, we've we uh, in 2017 we finished the year at you know 5,000 barrels of production, and we finished 2019 at 21,000 barrels of production. And so, I mean, we started canning beer, and I and it changed it totally radically changed our trajectory and our yeah. who we are. But I think we do a really good job of as we have grown to a larger, be a large, you know, regional brewery now. We're still very small compared to you know, a lot of other of my compatriots like 
you know, great sites that were still bigger than me and Fort George and stuff. And but we, I think we still have a, we still are making having, making sure that we're making unique beers. And we have flagship beers like Starburst that you know we sell a lot of, but people really like. But I think it's important that we still keep the the other niche beers going and stuff. And and uh, but it changes how you can react to beer because a lot of if you look at it, a lot of the top ten lists and stuff. Um, a lot of the breweries that you know are finding themselves at the top of this lot of lists. Uh, have not put themselves into a production environment, right? Where they, or yeah. Other than probably one, um, where they have to, um, you know, worry about getting out, you know, X number of barrels per day and create something really fun at the same time. So, yeah, you know, like the guys are gigantic. You know, my buddies, you know, like we're we're never going to get gigantic, you know, and like and they've stayed at a certain size and they and they're happy there and and uh, they they still get to make the beers they want to make, but they've also said we're not going to we want to be this big. And and they also have space. So, <laughs> I don't know if they want to be any bigger or not, but yeah, I've been talking about but. yeah whether there's sort of a Goldilocks size of a brewery, because there's a lot of breweries that are around twenty to thirty thousand barrels that seem to be doing quite well right now. They're nimble enough to sort of react to market trends, uh, but big enough to to capitalize on economies of scale and be efficient and be able to get a good price point that makes profit. And, right. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. yeah there's definitely a few of us. In town, that um, in Oregon, I guess uh, you know, just about three of us or four of us are have really grown the last few years since yeah. we opened. Um, others, I mean, but it also opened up with a produ- more production mindset. Um, but um, yeah, it's definitely it changes it changes your reality though when you're thinking about you know how many cases are going out the door every day versus yeah. whether that you know that, that uh, Belgian you know spontaneous sale is doing well in the food. <laughs> <you know? laughs> Do you worry about growing too big? Oh, I. I mean, we're we're pretty much going to max this space out this year. Yeah. At twenty-five-ish thousand barrels, if we sell that much, if we grow that. We grow what we think we're going to grow. Yeah. Um, and so we're pretty much. I don't know. I mean, is that an okay place to be? You know. Right. Um, I don't know. I mean, I know that. I mean, I think that if you could get to forty thousand barrels, I think you'd be in a pretty sweet spot as far as okay. being nimble enough to. Still have fun, but yet you know have all the economies of scale there. Really, yeah. where you're, you know you, you don't need a whole lot more people. Yeah, not that like it's people. I'm just saying, right? It's just right. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. You really, you know, like we're staffed for summer, and right now we're, you know, we're staffed for summer, and we're, our employees are still working, and everybody we're still making beer, but then we're ready to go when summertime comes. Right, and, right, right. And everything ramps back up again. You know? Yeah. So. Um, yeah, January and February aren't really the biggest months for the beer industry. <laughs> Is that right? So it's yeah. that seasonal, huh? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. February's worse, so here we go. <laughs> <laughs> but I don't know down. why February's Buckle worse. Down. <laughs> <laughs> I guess everybody quits drinking in February now. I don't know. <laughs> Yeah, well, there's dry January. Did you? How was dry January for you? Did you see any effect of people not drinking here? No, not really. The pub yeah. was actually up for the year over yeah. last year. Maybe dry January doesn't affect Portland. I don't Lots know. Lots of people want to drink. Yeah. People don't want to drink. It does, but no. It, it um, seems like a kind of a terrible time to stop drinking. Honestly, it's dark and yeah, the nights I think are like really a dry long. July. Yeah, okay. yeah, something like, <laughs> like that. Like lemonade or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> Why January? I need, I need it. You gotta get. No, yeah. You want to say too though is that we really wanted to, you know, provide a place for people to work that was fun to come to and. The culture was good, and people liked working together and worked as a team. And so we really worked hard over the last few years to try to drive that more. We keep trying it day in, day and more and more to try to really. I really learned how to full sail in the. Cause it was a, at that point, it was an employee and company at a certain point, and I really learned from the owners there that there's the importance of, uh, you know, of culture, importance of taking care of, um, making sure people are taken care of at work with you and stuff. And, and if you asked me when I opened, I'd have you know 62 employees. Right now, I would have laughed at you. I said you're absolutely crazy. <laughs> But yeah, that's how many people come to work 
in and around or our salespeople out in the trade right. every day. So it's crazy there's that many people that work here. I mean, yeah, it's nuts. Is that, is it's that great. Actually, you all, I love you all. Yeah. Does it make you a little bit anxious? That's a lot of that's a lot of people that are depending on you to still sell beer. I, I, yeah, I mean, of course it does. Yeah. <laughs> I yeah. mean, no, I mean, yeah, payroll's next week. Okay. <laughs> Never miss, we've not missed a payroll. <laughs> That's, that seems like a good thing. I have one, I have one last business-related question, which is that uh, from the outside perspective, it seems like the brew pub model is uh, a pretty solid model if you get the restaurant right. But being in the restaurant business is hard. So how do you as a brewer open up a restaurant and get it right? Um. Well, I knew I had to um, hire you know, a good person to run the restaurant because right. I didn't. I had been around restaurants my entire time at McMinimins to Shoots. And at, um, where I was with Full Sail, I was next door to the Harborside Restaurant, which is a, right. was a McCormick and Schmidt's property. So I always interacted with the, with the back of the house and the front right. of the house. And, right. But I never worked in a restaurant my entire life until now. But they won't let me work in the restaurant. They say, oh, no, no, John, go back to your, whatever you're doing over there, making beer. <laughs> but, um, I just, but I knew that I, I'd heard it so many times um, in brew pubs where it's like it'd be a, either the man or the woman or whoever is like, all right, you can have your one beer. Then we're going to go to a place where I can get a cocktail. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, or what I hated the most was you can eat your one beer. Then we're going to get some food somewhere else. And I was right, yeah. like, why are you leaving? Why are you? Why, why don't you have it? I mean, a lot of brew pubs all around. We're never going to have out liquor or wine. I'm like, why? Right. Because there's always going to be somebody in the crowd that wants liquor or wine. Or in a wine bar, wants a beer. You right. can have one beer on tap. You know right. what I mean? Right. So I wanted to have a place where no one walked away because the food was bad, and no one walked away because they didn't have an alcohol choice or a non-alcohol choice of being there. So I thought it was really important for me, for a business standpoint, just to offer all those different. Um, I have offered the full restaurant experience. You know. So and I was. I was. Fun, what's funny with me is a lot of my friends and stuff. I want to be able to just open these tap rooms. Well, we don't want to deal with the restaurant. We don't want to deal with this. Or they. Yeah. Or they go one step further, which is even you know kind of crazier, where they let someone come in and run the restaurant for them. And I'm like, you know, rest, I mean, restaurants don't make a lot of money, but they bring a lot of they bring a lot of cash flow, mm-hmm. especially when you're just opened, like right, six right. and a half years ago. <laughs> you know, we're at a point where the you know the brewery propped the, brought the uh, you know, restaurant propped the brewery for so long, and now right. the breweries well the restaurant's fine, but the brewery is now bigger than the restaurant. Right, that flip right. finally happened like, you know, a year ago. But it's just, um, I, I think there's a miss, really missed opportunity when you're not providing that whole experience where you can really, sh- people can sit down and you can say, yeah, I'll drink the phaser with that. And you yeah. taste, you, you, you eat that, say, fish of the day of some salmon, and then you get the citrus and the hops, you're like, wow, this is really working, you know. And I think people miss the boat by, by just leaving um, the food out of it. But that's their, it's their business, and I respect them for the fact that they don't, they understand the beer business, so they don't want to deal with the restaurant business. Yeah. So I totally understand that. But yeah. for me, it was one, I wanted both, and I've just been lucky enough to you know, find the right people to help me do that. Oh. I mean, my chef, Michael Molitor, I mean, he's been here since day one. He's my first employee. Really? He's still here? Oh, excellent. He's, he's been driving our culinary vision since day one and I think he's yeah. an outstanding chef and um, and I, I think that you know the food that him and his Sue's uh, Christian and Aaron come up with are just solid food man. Yeah. It's just and, I'll, and I'll throw in a, a, a kudos to his work the food has also evolved and I think has continued to be and it's been an interesting place to come and eat as well as drink so props for that right. yeah, yeah. Yeah. that was the idea just to yeah. come have the whole package and or if you just want a beer have a beer. Right. Well, that's always possible. <laughs> All right. So I'm going to take a moment to shout out to our listeners here because we have a, a, a mailbag question from the Twitter. Oh, uh, So Beer Cat, who's at Brown Cat Brews, 
I don't know if you know, but it says, ask if he still has the old Bridgeport brew house. So, John, oh. <laughs> do you still have the old Bridgeport brew house? I have, yeah, parts of it are sitting right there. Is that right? <laughs> We're looking into the brewery so, right now. So, so I went, cool. uh, in 2012, I was at the Great American Beer Festival. And I cut the line at the Dogfish Head booth to say hi to Sam Calagione, who's a friend of mine. And uh, he's like, yo, oh, oh, you're opening a brewery, right? I'm like, that's how he talks. And I'm like, yeah, I am. He goes, you need a brew house? I'm like, oh, yeah, absolutely I need a brew house. What size? What size? I'm like, great. F- 15, bro. I got one. I'm going to sell it to you. I'm like, okay. And so, make a long story short, so pictures come out, and I'm like, there's this kettle wrapped in redwood. <laughs> I'm like, the only kettle I ever knew in this, in this country wrapped in redwood was the one at Bridgeport that Dick Ponzi, the former owner, winemaker, thought it would look more English. It was wrapped in wood. Right. So instead of putting real insulation on it, they put this wood on this thing. Anyhow, that kettle, I actually have it. It's in the back of the building here. It's in your boneyard. It, uh, was it the High Desert Museum for the brewing exhibit? And then one day it came oh, back, yeah. and I'm like, why did it come back? <laughs> <laughs> you could have kept it. <laughs> but make a long story short, so the kettle wasn't usable, but the Whirlpool, we put a top on it, a JV. Uh-huh. The Tun, we put a, that was from Bridgeport's first Mashtun. So two of the two other brewing vessels are well, they're not used, they're actually getting ready to go to one of my brewers' startups in Wisconsin. I'm selling him oh. like 15. I'm passing on the love nice. that Sam nice. passed on to me, and then so many years ago. So he's going to get a good deal on and save him some money for startup. And yeah. um, so it's leaving actually sometime in the next couple of weeks. So it'd be sad to watch it leave, but yeah. I know it's going to a good place. And that's well, cool. It's a little bit of the karma going along. It's it's yeah. cool when you start talking to people about what parts are from which yeah, parts. When we were over at. Uh, uh, Boneyard, in fact, uh, last summer they have Bert Grant's old uh, kettle out in their parking lot, and it's like it's just she feels like good mojo to see that kind of yeah, stuff. Maybe it needs to go outside. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> maybe save water for irrigation in the summer or something. I don't know. Yeah, but um, no, but it was really a real. Uh, I mean, I I won't say what I, he, he charged me for it, but he he was very generous and uh, right. He had bought it out of a storage locker somewhere, and he had it in case maybe a system. Maybe dogfish could use it for something, but it never, it never came to fruition. That's uh-huh. why I got it here. Well, for those of you who are sentimental about the passing of Bru- uh, Bridgeport, just come to Ecliptic, and you'll get the, <laughs> the same experience through the brew house. That's right, the continuity. That's, right. Uh, at which, uh, I mean, the, the, the equipment still exists. The brewery doesn't, so it's kind of cool. Like, Bridgeport is gone. So uh, They're gone, yeah, yeah. sad. Yeah, it is really sad. Just the times have changed. <laughs> no, I mean, I think, I think the... I don't think there'll ever be another brewery. Well, I don't want to say ever. I think it'd be very difficult for a brewery to do what a lot of the, the old people did, which was to grow beyond their region, yeah, like yeah. to go more nationwide. I don't, I don't know who can pull that off these days because yeah. it's just so much local now. And we're, we're, you know, we sell some beer in Colorado and some beer in North Carolina, but we're strongest, you know, right here in Oregon, Washington. Right, sure. And because there's so many people like us and all the other cities and states and counties around them, around the country, are doing the exact same thing we're doing. Yeah. I'm making great beer. Yeah. All right, John. All right. Well, our time is up. I'd like to thank you for joining us. Uh, that was fast. Yeah, yeah it was it very fast. fast, but it was really I mean, enjoyable. We had three thank hours of much. material. Okay, a few words going out. Please listen every Thursday at 7 p.m. on X-Ray FM. You can listen to the podcast by subscribing to Apple, SoundCloud, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcast. Don't forget to rate us. Five stars, please. <laughs> Other listeners find the show. Love to hear from you, so please send your questions comments to Beervano, Jeff at BeervanaBog.com, on Twitter at BeervanaPod, and so on. All right, cheers, everybody. All right, cheers, and cheers, thanks guys. so much, John. Thanks, John. Thanks, thanks for having me. Really appreciate it. Woo-hoo. Woo-hoo.